You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Hey, hope as you're tuning in today, you and your family are safe and healthy, um, our very, very best to you. And uh, as we normally do on today's program, we are going to talk purely about finances. We're going to talk about markets, how the stimulus response to the coronavirus situation uh, may affect markets, and how you may be affected as well. Now, we are offering some additional resources during this time when markets are very volatile, and that's an understatement. Uh, We have our resources at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can go there and subscribe to our weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter. Uh, In it, uh, every Monday, we deliver to you our uh, commentary on what's going on in the markets and the economy. We also have a special webinar event coming up this week on Thursday. That's April the 9th. And this will begin, uh, this webinar event will begin at 6.30 p.m. and conclude at 7.30 p.m. It is free. Uh, We do reserve the right to turn away registrations once we reach our technology limit. Uh, However, if you would like to attend a webinar and learn more about what you might want to be doing now and a tool you may want to be using now uh, to help you figure out how you might navigate the current market volatility, I'd like to invite you to register for the webinar. The web address to register is rescueyourretirementwebinar.com, rescueyourretirementwebinar.com. Just go ahead and uh, get us... uh, Uh, your uh, name and email, and we will register you for the webinar and get you a link so you can participate from the comfort and safety uh, of your home. Again, the website to register for the webinar on April the 9th is rescueyourretirementwebinar.com. You know, stocks have bounced back a bit uh, since the initial decline. Uh, We believe that uh, there is a very high potential for more downside in stocks. Uh, moving ahead, particularly as uh, we see uh, probably the largest hit to gross domestic product in U.S. history that will occur the second quarter of this year. Now, as stocks typically decline, we often see U.S. government bonds advance. Well, when you look at the current U.S. government bond market, uh, there certainly is a couple of very interesting observations that we have to make. First of all, recently, yields on both the one-month and three-month Treasury bills dipped below zero. In other words, yes, we have negative interest rates as we have been predicting. I'll give you a bit from a CNBC article. It says that yields on both the one-month and three-month Treasury bills dipped below zero Wednesday, a week and a half after the Federal Reserve cuts its benchmark rate to near zero, and as investors have flocked to the safety of fixed income amid general market turmoil. It was the first time that happened in four and a half years when both bills briefly flashed red and yields fell to a minus 0.002% each. The readings Wednesday were well below those. The one-month traded at minus 0.053%. The three-month was at minus 0.033%. So the U.S. now joins 
Europe and Japan and having some negative yielding debt. So what has the Fed announced? And the Federal Reserve, the private group of bankers that control U.S. monetary policy, has announced that it will print money in whatever amount is needed for as long as it is needed in response to the current situation. I'll give you a bit from a Market Watch article saying aggressive action was needed to soften the blow to the economy from the coronavirus pandemic. The Federal Reserve on Monday announced it would purchase an unlimited amount of treasuries and securities tied to residential and commercial real estate to ward off a credit crunch. The Fed said it would buy assets in the amounts needed to support smooth market functioning and effective transmission of monetary policy. The Fed had previously set a $700 billion limit for asset purchases. Now, what does all this mean? Well, let's be clear. Let's not beat around the bush. When the Fed says it will buy assets in the amount needed, it means they will print as much money as they have to print to buy U.S. Treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and now, after the stimulus package, using SPVs or special purchase vehicles, and I'll talk about these on the webinar on Thursday when I have more time, the Fed can now print money to loan to the Treasury and let the Treasury buy commercial paper and corporate bond issues. This is essentially nationalizing a large swath of the U.S. economy. Now, that in and of itself will have consequences as well. But let me focus here on the money creation. The article went on to say that the New York Fed said it would buy $75 billion of Treasury securities and about $50 billion of agency-backed mortgage securities each business day subject to reasonable prices. So $75 billion plus $50 billion. That's $125 billion per day. Now, let me put those numbers into perspective for you. The Fed just committed to buying $125 billion a day in Treasury securities and mortgage securities. In a week, that amounts to $625 billion in a five-day week. Now, if we turn the clock back and look at when quantitative easing or money printing began in earnest after the financial crisis, the Fed at that time bought Treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities, but bought $75 billion per month. Now, at the time, printing $75 billion per month was considered to be extreme. But now we're talking $625 billion per week. At that rate, according to Jim Bianco at Bianco Research, it's only going to take a year, and the Federal Reserve will own two-thirds of the U.S. Treasury market. Now, these numbers, frankly, are just out of hand. In fact, if I go back and look at articles from 10 years ago, I found one from CNN Money that was published in November of 2010. And the article goes like this. In its latest move to jumpstart the sluggish recovery, the Federal Reserve announced it will pump billions into the economy. The central bank will buy $600 billion 
in long-term treasuries over the next eight months, the Fed said Wednesday. $600 billion over eight months equals the $75 billion per month that I just mentioned. Now, the Fed back in 2010 said not only would they print $75 billion a month, they actually say they're going to engage in treasury purchases, but they would also hold interest rates at an exceptionally low level for an extended period. Now, there was one voice of skepticism at the time. Kansas City Fed President Thomas Honig voted against printing $600 billion 10 years ago. He said the risks of additional securities purchases outweighed the benefits. Another commentator at the time, Paul Ashworth, a senior economist with Capital Economics, said, this is a slippery slope. Once you're on it, it's very hard to get off. Now, I said at the time that once money printing starts, it doesn't end until it ends badly. And that is the lesson of history. John Law's France in the early 1700s, the Roman Empire, other times in U.S. history, although much less extreme. What we're experiencing now firsthand is that history does indeed repeat itself. The difference between this article from 10 years ago and articles written presently are the numbers. The narrative is the same. Ten years ago, conversations took place in billions. Now they take place in trillions. Now let me give you some perspective as we close this segment. If you were to stack $1,001 bills, you'd have a stack about 4.3 inches high. If you were to stack $1 trillion $1 bills, that stack of money would be 67,866 miles high, or enough to wrap around the circumference of the Earth 2.72 times. Now, that's about how much money the Fed has printed since the first of the year. However, there are reports that this balance sheet might expand to $10 trillion by the end of the year. That's simply remarkable. We are in unprecedented times, uncharted territory, I would encourage you to check out our webinar this Thursday to give you some strategies to think about for your situation. Rescue Your Retirement Webinar is the website to register for the Thursday night at 6.30 webinar. The website, again, Rescue Your Retirement Webinar. I will be back after these words with the Addicted to Profits newsletter publisher, Mr. David Skarika. Stay with us. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is returning guest, David Skarika. Uh, David's website is addictedtoprofits.net. That's addictedtoprofits.net. His newsletter is Addicted to Profits. I would encourage you to check it out. And uh, David has a special offer going uh, on his newsletter. Uh, you can check it out for just 30 bucks a month uh, at his website. If you want to uh, go check out what David does, I'd encourage you to do that. And hey, David, welcome back to the program. Yeah, thank you. And if I could plug something else quickly, um, I actually had a guy who was a foreign uh, correspondent for Barstool Sports here at my place right before we got you know, the quarantine and the lockdown in the Bahamas. And so his name is uh, uh, Donnie Does. You just look him up on YouTube. And we did some very funny videos around the, vi- around the island. So if you're stuck in your house right now and you're bored and you're a little depressed, 
watch those. We're getting great feedback uh, on them, and they're kind of funny to watch. And, you, know, you can escape reality for a half an hour at a time. And we got about four or five of them up there. So that's just a, another thing before we get into the markets. Well, great. I'd uh, go check that. I'll go check those out too. So, David, uh, you know, I think we we talked a bit here before we uh, started uh, recording, and. Uh, I gave you a quote from Patrick Wyman, and it was, crises like pandemics don't break things in and of themselves. They show you what's already broken. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I really agree with that. And and actually, I've done a lot of studies on it, and, you know, because I'm kind of a, you know, I'm a bit of an internet nerd and search nerd. So when stuff like this happens, I just start researching everything to, to see, what, you know, and I'm a history buff, too, to see, you know, what's you know, what, what happened in the past and et cetera. And uh, first of all, uh, you know, Tlaib, the guy who wrote the black swan, he's even saying this is not a black swan event. These, these type of pandemics and illnesses and flus, they happen all the time. So that's number one. I think that's a number one really important thing to, um, um, uh, to, to, rec to, you know, to, to look at and, uh, uh, you know, to, to keep in, um, to account because, for example, everyone. Talk, I'm not going to talk about 1918, but people don't realize in 1957 there was an Asian flu, which killed about a million people worldwide, and about 70,000 people in the states. Actually, maybe two million people worldwide. The estimates are one to three, so it's like two. And then in 1968 there was a Hong Kong flu, which killed again about a million people worldwide and 100,000 in the states. And we didn't shut down the economy, and you know you didn't even hear about these things because it's kind of the natural course of, you know, of nature you know, to maybe keep things sustainable, you know, you know, there's Darwinianism, you know, survival, the, uh, the fittest, that sort of thing. So like, this has always happened throughout history. And the fact that the market reacted to this, the market didn't even react like this in 1918, 1919, when, um, when, you know, this pandemic killed over 600,000 people in the US and killed anywhere estimates are from one to 3% of the global population. So the, the fact that this, that everything's reacted like this, you have to look at what you know, you know, you know, Trump uh, likes to call it the strongest economy ever, and you know, uh, this is not a smear at Trump, but that's total. That that's obviously wasn't the case. If this uh, sort of shock could basically lead to trillions in bailouts, um, you know, the stock market crashing, um, all, you know, basically, you know, unemployment's going to be probably the highest since the Great Depression, and you know, it's kind of a generational shift in attitudes, in my opinion, towards spending and other things. So. I think that's stuff to kind of look at here. And you have to realize, again, this is not a black swan event. These pandemics happen all the time. And the, the issue was, and I've been warning about this since about 2015, was this whole economy was built on cheap money. Stock buybacks, corporate borrowing, the Fed keeping rates low, you know, artificially low, um, you know, people getting back into debt, corporations getting into debt. And I think you're seeing that. And I think that the fact that corporations needed the bailouts uh, kind of quicker and the average person is going to need something as well tells you, again, I thought that the corporate debt market uh, was essentially the new subprime. And I think this is being shown to be because, you know, you know, one month of not operating and the airlines are all broke. Right. And Boeing's broke. And so I think that's, you know, that is where the leverage was in the system. And now because it, now what's happening is we're essentially printing money to try to paper that over um, and the like. So, um, and then of course there are, and I think another issue is the whole moral hazard thing where, you know, in 2008, this shows you the problems with bailing out the banks, with not letting the, some of the banks fail and then, you know, them be restructured and someone take over the assets you know, or, or bailing out GM. 
um, is that now everyone wants a bailout, right? Uh, you know, restaurants want a bailout, movie theaters want a bailout, airlines want a bailout, Boeing wants a bailout. People want basic uh, universal basic income because they can't pay their bills. Everyone wants a bailout. And how can you say no after you bailed out the banks in 2008? Right. So let me ask you this, David. Uh, when you take a look at some of the economic forecasting being done by you know, some, some, some big banks and actually uh, uh, James Bullard, who is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, said that uh, the unemployment rate uh, second quarter could hit 30% because of shutdowns. And we might see a drop of up to 50% in GDP. I mean, that is unprecedented. What is that going to do to financial markets? Okay, first of all, with the Fed, a lot of those numbers are based on not doing any sort of bailout. I, I read that report and, 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 and the guys who wrote that report admitted that. So we have done a sort of bailout. So that probably won't happen this quarter. And secondly, why is the Federal Reserve now becoming the harbinger of doom and gloom and, you know, and fear mongering? And I think it is because they're using this as excuse to monetize the whole economy to basically bail everyone out, to print money, buy stocks, buy corporate bonds, buy, you know, buy four. Remember, there's a lot, there's a big issue with, and one reason the dollar will probably remain strong in the short term is there's all these foreign companies that issue debt in U.S. dollars, and they're desperate for dollars. So I think that's something to kind of look at as well, is, um, is why is the Fed talking like that? And I think they're using that as an excuse to essentially, you know, fund MMT, you know, buy all these assets up, you know, like buy ETFs like they have done in Japan. And I think they're using that fear mongering to do so. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think things are going to get bad. Um, I think, yeah, we are probably going to be in the worst economy since the Great Depression. But I think they're, you know, for, for the Fed, who usually is very rosy when they talk things up, to give that kind of uh, fear, I think that's why they're using that as an excuse so they can just basically go full monetization of everything. Well, and I think uh, that that's their intent. Uh, when you when you look at uh, uh, one of the provisions in the uh, stimulus package, it was just recently passed. Um, the Fed's going to finance SPVs or special purpose vehicles to essentially allow the Treasury to, uh, to, to to now back corporate assets. So, I mean, isn't this really just giving the Washington politicians control of the printing press? Yeah. And, and see what they're going to do as well, you know, and giving the politicians control and, you know, choosing who they're going to bail out and the whatnot is I think what they're going to do as well is when they issue the stuff for like Trump actually today just talked about doing a two trillion dollar infrastructure program to put people back to work. Right. So that's on top of the two trillion that's already been announced. And and well, how is this going to be funded? I think the Fed will issue some or so the government's going to issue some kind of special 30 or 50 year emergency bond. And then the Fed just buys it. And the way that works is when they did QE before is remember the interest that comes from those bonds goes back to the treasury. So you're like, you're basically borrowing in one hand and paying the other. So it really costs the government nothing net. Right. And then I, I think what, you know, and then if the Fed owns it in 30 years, you could just say, you know, when that debt comes due, you could just say, okay, we're going to roll it over another 30 years, you know, because whatever, it's just printed money anyhow. So I, I think that that's essentially what's going to be done. And I think the issue is, Okay, this is longer term. You know, like I said, we're in this deflationary liquidation phase now where everything is going down. 
But once you get a little bit of demand back in the economy and look at doing a two trillion dollar infrastructure project is going to create demand because people will be employed, they'll have money to spend. Uh, Those people are employed, you know, by that. Uh, There'll be demand for steel, copper, thing, you know, concrete, uh, things of this nature. And you do that combined with the printed money. I think that's actually when we can finally get some kind of inflationary spiral. But we kind of have to go through this liquidation phase first. And um, that's what we're doing. And by the way, I think the liquidation phase will take longer. Now, I don't mean very short term. I mean, like we could see some kind of retest of the lows in April or May and then a rally into the summer. But I'm looking for still a 50 percent drawdown in stocks before we see a significant bull market or rally. And I think after that drawdown, they will be so scared, like in another wave down in the fall, they'll be so scared of uh, a deflationary bust like the 30s. They will really, you think they're, what they're doing now is crazy. They'll really go overboard and just want to try to inflate everything away. So remember the difference between the 30s is the government debt to GDP was 16% you know, in 1929 before the crash. Well, it's over 100% now and it's on its way to 150. Yeah, the so, government's broke now. Yeah, the government's broke. Well, that, that, and that's going to be a major issue. What happens to, and no one's talking about this, if at some point these debts get big enough, the bond vigilantes come back and they say, no, 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 you're broke. You've got to give us a little bit of return on these bonds because you're higher risk. You know, your debt is 150, 200% of GDP. All it would take at 100 or 250% or 200% of GDP on the, the foreign and publicly owned debt, not the stuff the Fed owns, all it would take was normalization of rates you know, to three, four, five percent, and then the, the country is broke. And then actually, you, you, you saw what happened in Greece when you've got to slash, you know, services and slash, you know, have a real um, uh, uh, problem financially and real deep recession, then the government can't bail everyone out. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen for a little while. I see that kind of happening a few years out. Everyone should read a book called Bankruptcy 1995, by Harry Figge, and he was saying this is going to happen in the mid-90s, and everything takes longer than you thought. And um, if you actually read, actually, his projected debts are exactly where we are right right now. But what 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 where Figge got it wrong is he didn't think that interest rates uh, would still be 1% or something with the government debt north of $20 trillion. So the, 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 that's the real issue. What happens in the next phase when the governments go broke? And the scary thing is this, is that when the British Empire went broke after World War II, the U.S. was there as a big creditor, and you know they even gave British a loan. You know they they did the Marshall Plan for Germany. Um, so you basically got all these countries broke in Europe from the war, but the U.S. was there, and you know most of the U.S. debt was rung up as just for the war, and that started to come down very quickly. Well, now you're in a situation where most every Western country, company is broke, and China's broke too because of their credit binge, and who's really there to step into the void? with the whole world kind of being broke. That's, that's the kind of scary thing, which is why I think you have to somewhat ignore the, concer- the cur- uh, currencies trading against each other. And at some point, watch commodity prices, watch gold prices, watch silver prices when they reinflate, because you know the euro and the dollar, who knows, they could stay at 110 against each other. But what will happen is gold and silver will be going up against everything. You know, it's interesting, and uh, we're just about out of time in this segment, but I interviewed John Williams from Shadow Stats, who was on the program last week, and he said something very similar. He said, you're probably not going to see this in the CPI and in the numbers, but watch commodity prices, watch gold prices, watch silver prices. So 
Uh, I think we've got some uh, consensus there. Hey, my guest today is Mr. David Skarika. His newsletter is Addicted to Profits. You can check it out at addictedtoprofits.net. He's got a special offer going for another week. So again, the website addictedtoprofits.net. I will return after these words, and I will continue my conversation with David. Stay with us. I am Dennis Tubergen, your host. You're listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. My guest on today's program is Mr. David Skarika. Uh, David is the publisher of the newsletter Addicted to Profits. You can check it out at addictedtoprofits.net, and he has a uh, really good deal going right now if you want to check out his newsletter in light of everything going on out there in the financial markets and in the economy. And uh, David, in the last segment, um, you know, we were talking a bit about uh, inflation and this money printing has to lead to inflation. And, you know, there is a big disparity between what the real inflation rate is and what the official reported rate is. Do you want to comment? Well, I think like actually if you want one example of a sector like that is actually uh, vehicle prices. You know, the Fed's got vehicle prices saying they've been up like. 40% since 1982 or something, but the average price of a car is up like 400%. Because what they do is they do this stupid thing in their calculation where they say, like, you know, because now a car is a lot nicer than it was in 1982. There's, there's, yeah, they're computerized, they drive better, you got better, whatever, steering, and, you know, you got Teslas, which are like almost like like, like an Apple computer in a car. But anyhow, um, so they factor that in and say, oh, yeah, it's up 10%, but the technology is 9% better, so it's only up one. So they're going to do this in everything. So what I think is going to happen is, first of all, let's look at hyperinflation. Everyone thinks about Germany or what happens in these South American countries, what's going on in Venezuela right now. But there are unique circumstances to those major hyper hyperinflations. Hyperinflation is really anything over 20%. So um, remember, the rule of 72 states, you know, you take the percentage increase, how long it's going to take to double in price. So if you have 35% inflation, every two years, your prices are doubling. That's kind of what I'm looking for, like the 70s on steroids. And what they can do then is report inflation at six. You know, the, the screw over the people on the fixed incomes only getting five, six percent increases or government employees or people that have wages set to inflation really increase prices at what are 30, 40, 50 percent. And and basically I, I print away all the debts that we have right now. Right. And then and like you said uh, earlier, you have to look at commodity prices. You have to look at um, uh, gold and silver prices because they, when they, we get into that inflationary stage, they will tell you what's really going on. Right. Not not not, um, you know, not the government CPI. But I think that is basically the end game is that they'll, they'll say, oh, we want a bit more inflation because we just went through this bust and they won't mind inflation going to whatever, four or five percent. And they'll be reporting at four or five percent, but it will really be 30 or 40 percent. So the worst thing you can do now, hopefully, if someone is retired, unfortunately, you're going to have to find a way to diversify your income or investments, because if you're on a, a pension or some kind of fixed income, I really think you're going to be screwed in the coming years. And, and um, I'm not saying take on debt, but the current debt you have, if you can refinance that or, or put that further out, and I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not recommending you know, <laughs> as, as a thing, it has to be manageable for your situation. But I would think that in three to five years, personally, that debt is going to be very much inflated away. Like I, I, I personally, I wouldn't take on more debt, especially if you have a variable debt. Once inflation does move, even if they're underreporting it, interest rates will probably start to go up a little bit. So then you're going to be paying more interest on that debt. But if your current debt is manageable, you might want to, you know, extend it because it will just be like inflated away. 
And I think when you'll really see it is, again, all we have to really do now is, again, again, we're in this liquidation phase. Gold and silver will probably, uh, you know, in the next month or two, still kind of have a, a lid on them. But at some point, when there's some demand returning to the economy, and remember, what causes hyperinflation is uh, 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 supply chains being disrupted, plus printing of money. We didn't get that after 2009. Supply chains were fine. Well, we're going to get that here for numerous reasons. You know, certain fa- uh, factories not going to production because worries over the workers might get the pandemic. We might see a shift away from all the production of goods and service, or sorry, of uh, of, um, of goods being in China, and that will leave a void because to build a new factory, move those jobs away from China is going to lead to less uh, supply for a while. So there's all kinds of factors which could play a part here. And oil and gas would be a classic example that's a lot of frackers, a lot of highly leveraged, leveraged oil and gas companies are going to fail. And then that means less supply. And then all of a sudden, when there's a tiny little demand uptick in oil and gas, that will cause the price to move higher. So David, when you start talking about, you know, real inflation of, you know, 30 some percent where prices double every two years, that's a pretty scary proposition for someone thinking about retirement. So give me your take on time frame, which I know is a very difficult thing to predict, but give me your best guess. And then uh, what should someone be doing to protect themselves from that eventual outcome, in your opinion? Well, there's two uh, basically trains of thought in the market right now. And this is where I come into my inflation bet. One is that this is like the 1930s, and we will see you know some kind of rebound probably into the summer, and then this huge deflationary bust. I don't think they will allow that to happen because of all the debt in the world. And we've seen the extreme measures the Federal Reserve is taking, right? The second one is this is just like 1987. This is the, the rosy one. And we'll base out, you know, we had a 30 40% drop in the market, and we'll just, everything will come back. But remember, in 87, the, the economy didn't really get affected by that stock market crash uh, for years until the 1990 recession. You know, there was really no fallout other than maybe some Wall Street guys losing their jobs then. So I think we're, I'm in the middle. I think that after, you know, because you know, the market is still expensive, uh, the market cap to GDP right now is still 120%, which is still other than uh, the dot-com bubble and the all-time high uh, um, we were at a few months ago, that would be near the all-time high for the size of the market compared to the economy. And of course, the economy is now shrinking. So I think one uh, game plan is... Um, if there is another leg lower in the market, I just did a presentation on my website. And it's using John Templeton's maximum pessimism uh, theory, where many of these stocks, especially in the bailout sectors, airlines, Boeing, restaurants, et cetera, they're going to fall 90 to 95%, and there will be great buys then. Uh, the ones that survive will actually probably go up hundreds or if not thousands of percent. So the average investor can stay on the sidelines and look to take advantage of those deals if they occur. And obviously, I think you're going to want to be in gold and silver. Now, if you look at in the 30s, gold and silver did fantastically, and even in a deflationary time. So again, I think once we're through this initial liquidation, you know, uh, when the next phase of the bear market happens, it won't be as quick as this. Like the 29 crash was very quick, and then it kind of slowly moved lower after that, right? So I think once we see that, um, uh, we're going to... um, um, the, uh, this phase, the, the next phase will probably be a little slower, and then we'll get to whatever that 50% decline, and then you'll see some bargains show up and the whatnot. But again, to think that the market is cheap right now, and I know if you're someone on a fixed income, you might want to think, oh, yeah, market value will just go right back up. I think that's a delusion because, again, market cap to GDP, and then a lot of the factors that drove the market, the stock buybacks, the cheap money, that's essentially over. 
remember before 1982, stock buybacks were illegal and they were seen as a form of insider trading. And I think we're going to go back to that rule again because they were abused so badly. And remember, stock buybacks was one of the forms of buying that took the, the market higher. So I think that just to sit there and buy and hold and think that Apple or Netflix are going to go up forever, those days are over with. And like I said, you have to have some gold and silver. Um, I, I, and I think the simplest thing to do is, you know, people like me who can trade, who can short, blah, blah, blah. But the average investor is just, just sit there and wait to see if these bargains show up. Um, and for example, Las Vegas Sands went from 80 to two, actually 125 during the financial crisis. And within two or three years, it was trading back at $40 a share. And you're going to get opportunities like that again in the casinos, in the airlines, in these beaten up sectors, but they haven't fallen enough yet. They're not right now. They're only off about 40, 50%. I want to see them down 80, 90, 95%. Yeah, those are a huge decline. So do you see, David, that this uh, we're going to get a little bit of a reprieve here? The you know they're they're trying to reflate things, uh, but you see this decline probably happening yet this year. I think what will happen is okay. So this is basically ba- uh, based on this kind of Corona collapse, uh, the current market decline, and then I-, I think the second, even if the virus isn't seasonal and doesn't show up in the fall, and I think some of it it will a little bit. Usually, it doesn't have to be 1918 where the actually the violent part was in the fall, but even in those other um, those other pandemics, I, I mentioned the Asian and Hong Kong flus, they, they came back uh, again over the next few years, even if it wasn't as uh, uh, vicious as the first cycle. But and that would scare people in the fall too. But I think it's more going to be economic. Is that if you and this is what happened in 29 is that if you get this you know move lower, um, you know into uh, I think we'll retest sorry in, in April or May. And then it move higher into the summer and people will think, oh, yeah, the pandemic's over. Everything's going to come back. And I think the next decline would probably be more economically based that it's like, oh, you know what? People lost all this money. They were behind on their rent, behind on their mortgages. They don't have money to go out and spend, um, you know, uh, in restaurants. And even if they do have a bit of money, they're going to save it because they're going to think, you know, three months ago, I almost lost my house. I almost you know, got kicked out because I couldn't pay my rent. And you're going to see spending habits change. And I think that will be reflected, and then the market will have to adjust to that probably in the fall, in the first half of um, next year. So it's tough to, you know, kind of um, time those t- uh, type of things. But I think if we do get this summer rally after a retest or maybe a slightly lower low in April or May, I think the next phase will be more of an economic decline and a and a and a kind of a feeling that oh, you know what, things aren't going back to where they were. Than rather than um, uh, based on the pandemic. So, David, uh, we've got about uh, two minutes left in this segment. You mentioned that everybody should probably have some silver and gold. I would certainly agree with that. Um, how do you like to own silver and gold? Well, I do own, you know, stuff, obviously, equities. I do own, uh, you can own the physical. That's very difficult right now because the tightness in the physical market, market you're not going to be able to buy gold or so silver for 13 or $14. That's just not going to happen. But if you're, if you think that ultimately gold, you know, silver is going to double, triple, quadruple, you're paying in the late teens, like, you know, 30, 40% over the spot price. And you could argue the spot price is not even real at this point, um, is probably a prudent move. And actually I, I have a, have an option trade on, on the SLV, the silver ETF, because I, you know, the, the gold to silver ratio is at an all time high now, meaning that silver has never been this cheap when compared to gold. So I bought some call options on the SLV. I bought it when the SLV was about 12 and I bought, January 2021, 13 calls, and they're actually already in the money. But I think, uh, I think again, when this, when you get this bounce in the summer, silver will rally strong. 
Um, so yeah, you you can buy it through ETFs. The, the central fund of Canada, or now Sprott CEF, is probably the best way because they actually own the physical. They just don't own paper certificates. They actually have a vault somewhere that owns the physical. So if you if you don't want to pay the huge premium in the physical, the CEF is probably the way to go. And obviously, you can own some of the physical. You can own. I really still like the gold stocks because in the short term, mines are shut down because of you know you have the closure over the pandemic fears. But I think in the longer term, what's going to happen um, is, you know, once those mines are reopened, you know, they're going to get all this cash flow and all this money coming in um, from higher gold and precious metal uh, uh, prices. And in the short term, they also might um, have an advantage of because of the short term deflationary pressures, people are going to be happy to have a job. So the workers won't be asking for pay increases or anything the like. So the wage pressure, there'll be no wage pressure and they'll be able to, you know, um, pay these guys uh, what they want and the, and the prices will be rising. So margins should actually go up. And then remember, one of the biggest input costs of a mine is oil and gas. You know, the tractors, the, all the machinery runs in oil and gas. Well, with gas so low, you know, you're going to have very low input costs and actually cost of production may actually go down while gold prices are going higher here. But again, with gold, again, the last thing as I say, because we are in the liquidation phase, I could still see gold prices remaining weak into the spring and then uh, rallying with everything in the summer. But I think last thing here, there will be a disconnect. If, that, if there is that fall decline I'm talking about in markets, I actually think because the liquidation phase will be open, gold and silver might actually rally while the markets are declining during that decline, which would be something we really haven't seen it did it a bit from uh, 2000 to 2002, but really that was what happened in the 70s uh, bear markets, that gold and silver were hedges, and they would actually increase like in 73, 74, um, 80, you know, 79, 80, while the market was actually decreasing. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. David Skarika. His newsletter is Addicted to Profits. The website is addictedtoprofits.net. I'd encourage you to check it out. He's also got a special offer that's uh, out there for about another week or so. Uh, David, hey, thanks for joining us. Uh, stay safe down there in the Bahamas and love to have you back on down the road. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, that, if, there's a lot to talk about right now. There really so, is. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, we will be back after these words. Welcome back to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Thanks again to Mr. David Skarika for joining me on today's program. You know, in the first segment of today's program, I pointed out that aggressive monetary policy back in 2010 after the financial crisis had the Fed printing $600 billion and buying U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities over an eight-month time frame. Now, however, they're doing that in a week. So what will all this money creation do to the U.S. dollar? In fact, many of you have probably been listening to the news, watching the news, and if you're paying attention to the financial reports, you see that the U.S. dollar, as measured by the U.S. dollar index, has been strong relative to other world currencies. Now, the point there is relative to other world currencies. We live in a world today where every currency is a fiat currency. It's currency, it's legal tender by fiat, by government decree. Yet the dollar still has some advantages despite all this money creation that other currencies around the world do not have. 
However, that situation is rapidly changing. Saudi Arabia sells all its oil in U.S. dollars. So if you're a country that wants to buy oil from Saudi Arabia, you have to have U.S. dollars to do so. Foreign countries typically borrow in U.S. dollars and pay back their loans in U.S. dollars. These two facts demonstrate that there is still demand for U.S. dollars. And if you think about it, if you're a foreign country and you see that the dollar is getting stronger relative to your currency and you have to pay back that loan in dollars, you have a much higher cost to pay back the loan. Now, Jim Rickards, who is a past guest here on the program and best-selling author of the book, The Death of Money, estimates that about 40% of the world's debt is issued in U.S. dollars, and that will create some at least short-term demand for dollars. Now, if you take a look at how the dynamics of this money creation and lending have taken place, Rickards gives us a very interesting perspective. He said, yeah, the Fed has been creating dollars, but U.S. dollar-denominated debt was growing exponentially to the rate of dollar creation. This is directly uh, from Rickards, a quote from Mr. Rickards. He says, this huge debt pyramid was fine, as long as global, global growth was solid and dollars were flowing out of the U.S. and into emerging markets. But that's no longer the case, and that is an understatement. Global growth was anemic before the crisis hit, and now it's contracting rapidly. If dollars are in short supply, China can't control its currency, and emerging markets can't roll over their debts. But again, you might say, isn't the Fed engaged in its most massive liquidity injections ever? And aren't they expanding swap lines to foreign central banks to ensure they can access dollars? Rickard says, yes, that's happening, but it's not nearly enough to meet global funding needs. Foreign nations are scrambling to acquire dollars right now. And that surging demand for dollars only drives up the value of the dollar, which puts additional strain on their ability to service debt. See, when those debt holders want their money back, $4 trillion is not enough to finance $100 trillion unless new debt replaces the old. That's what causes a global liquidity crisis. Rickard says we're facing a global liquidity crisis far worse than the one that occurred in 2008. In fact, the world is heading for a debt crisis not seen since the 1930s. Rickards goes on to say the trend away from the dollar was already underway before the latest crisis led by China and Russia. Now that trend will accelerate as the world seeks to eliminate or greatly reduce its dependence on the dollar. So there is a move away from the dollar, and as all this money is created, that move will intensify. And the question is, what does that mean for you? Are we going to see, at some future point, massive inflation? Our guest on today's program, Mr. David Skarika, thinks we will, as do I after we get through an initial deflationary period. If you'd like to learn more about strategies that you might consider 
to implement in your situation, whether you have a 401k or an IRA, I'd like to invite you to attend our free webinar to be held Thursday, April 9. You can attend uh, from the comfort and safety of your home. You just need to be in front of a computer that has some speakers. That's the only requirement. The other requirement is you do need to register. We have uh, technology limitations, so once the webinar has reached its capacity, we will have to turn away uh, would-be attendees. Uh, however, if you would like to register for the webinar, visit rescueyourretirementwebinar.com. The website, again, is rescueyourretirementwebinar.com. And uh, you can attend our webinar on Thursday. There will not be any presentation for financial products. It will be information only. The website, again, is rescueyourretirementwebinar.com. Also, visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. If you'd like to listen to any of the interviews here, they're posted there. You can also subscribe to our newsletter delivered every Monday. And again, that website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's all the time I have for this week. I'll be back again next week. Stay safe.